0: This is writer and game designer Robin D.
1: Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenna Fight.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.
1: Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include. Weak Opponents, The Sandby Borg Massacre, Phil Baldowski, and Our Moon's Metallic South Pole.
1: Hopping vampires tried to stop it. Transformed animals conspired to block it. Evil eunuchs issued proclamations against it. Armani-clad assassins put it in their crosshairs.
0: Laudably virtuous monks considered a possible threat to spiritual discipline.
1: But thanks to the gun-toting fist-flying efforts of your favorite scrappy underdogs at Atlas Games, Feng Shui 2. Robin's acclaimed and recently improved Game of Action Thrills has been reprinted and is again headed to stores.
0: Import the excitement of the Hong Kong Action Cinema
1: Masters to your role-playing table. And when in doubt, do as the jammers do. And blow things up. Blow things up. Blow things up. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And today in the gaming hut, ah, those miniatures, that's just skellingtons, Robin. We got no problem. Turn and burn, turn and burn. But wait, that is a problem, because Tom Shaw, beloved Patreon backer, asks, Strong PC, weak opponent. Apart from just overwhelming them with sheer numbers, how could I turn weak opponents into a real challenge for strong PCs? Robin?
0: So uh, you do asymmetrical uh, combat just like it is in real life on Star Wars. Uh, right. So uh, in this uh, scenario, the uh, opponents are the Ewoks and the player characters are the At-Ats. And your enemies will be using insurgent tactics, uh, which uh, let's uh, warn you right up front. The players will really hate, uh, just as a real superior opponents, uh, hate to find out that they're not superior at all once tactics of insurgency are taken into account. So the first most obvious one is that the opponents, uh, they don't want a fair fight. Uh, they don't want a, a, a stand up fight where the two sides line up at each other and they whack on each other. That's, that's the fight they will lose. So, uh, they might start out, for example, with, uh, only firing a missile fire and uh, retreating, running away when the uh, PCs come at them or even better using traps and, and booby traps and finding all sorts of ways to uh, sabotage and, uh, and uh, whittle down their advantage. from
1: Running the, away, leading the opponents to chase them into ground that is more familiar for them or more favorable. So if the reason your PCs are more powerful is because they have great magic, uh, maybe the cobalt ambushers uh run away and lead them past the great dragon graveyard where the slumbering draconic magics uh awaken and attack magic users or they damp out the magic because otherwise uh it would just tear the the soil right out of the earth or whatever happens but it's a place where suddenly the magicians find themselves Pinned down so that the kobolds could stand up on the on the statues of the dragon heads and, and throw uh, javelins at them. Poison javelins, by the way. Not fair javelins.
0: Right. And that's just one example of a vast panoply of denial tactics that you can use to uh, really anger and frustrate your players. <laughs> because yeah. denial uh, magic or tactics can range from all sorts of things. So, they can have... Caustic acid that temporarily weakens or perhaps even permanently weakens the, uh, the armor that the uh, player characters are uh, relying on. So in an F20 context, they could have rust monsters set up to go and leap on people. And boy, players really super hate that. And whatever advantage it is that the characters typically rely on against them, uh, obviously anti, you know, an anti magic sphere is a good one or, or just the basic terrain advantages so uh they could have uh you know traps planted uh in the environment once you finally chase them into their haven where suddenly they are mobile and you are not because they're little small tunnels and uh they're sized for the opponents and not for you you get in there and oh look here's here's an area where there's a spongy marshy swamp and guess what they're adept at uh, running through the swamp uh, and you are not, so they have a movement advantage over you. So it's all about augmenting the weakness of the opponents with their uh, the the strength of their control over the environment and their ability to uh, take away all the things that you would expect the player characters to use. So uh, think to yourself, what are the player characters going to do in this instance? Well, they have a counter for that.
1: Yes, and, and it's a counter that probably they've used time and again against similar... Uh, parties um in an F20 context this is not the first adventuring party to come around the corner the kobolds are ready for this kind of nonsense um in another kind of context a, a superhero context maybe they're using a different asymmetrical warfare they're going on TV and getting a lot of sympathy for their political cause or their the fact that they're super darling or that one of them has, uh, you know, charisma powers. And it's like, I can't believe that the supers are being so mean and beating us up where we just want peace and love and childcare. And everyone can then turns on the supers and they become hampered and weakened because suddenly people, uh, you know, uh, warn them, uh, like, uh, the, the, the standard system in, in, uh, in, in blocks controlled by, by gangs where there are uh, kids out there that act as uh, sentinels when the cops come. The same sort of situation w- c- could happen in a Supers universe. They see the Capes coming overhead. They get on the on the cell phone or whatever or the burner phones, and they beep it out. Then suddenly, well, that's where the um, uh, the kryptonite trap is, or or whatever it happens to be, or whatever it needs to be. Another possibility is that maybe an individual member of the of the Cobolds with the or the weak force is a glass cannon. They're, they are still only have the eight hit points or whatever, but they've gotten their hands on something that makes them a grave danger, and that's the sort of paradigmatic um, in um, uh, Black Hawk Down. You have the one or two Somalis that have the RPGs, and suddenly they're a real threat to the Rangers. Now, um, they still get mowed down by helicopter gatling fire if it comes to that, but before then, they present a real threat, and it, those threats don't stand up neatly at the beginning of the battle. They pop up, on their initiative after you've gone and then they shoot you. Uh, that is how, uh, glass cannons operate.
0: And also there's all sorts of things that they can do to you without fighting. Uh, so you, uh, go down for your, uh, for your rest in the forest and they sneak up and they, uh, they steal your, uh, your pack full of stuff. They take your equipment and maybe you catch them one time, but there's a whole bunch of them. That's where their numbers come in. And, uh, they're willing to have a certain number of their uh, forces caught or they use other uh, you know they act indirectly they work through others they have you know weird creatures that come up and you know again the rust masters can come up and glom onto your uh, weaponry or they can have uh, you know trained uh, uh, dogs that attack you in the night that they can do all sorts of things without themselves risking their own lives and so
1: they uh, stampa- using- they stampede buods <laughs> through your camp. Exactly. All they have to do is just interrupt your long rest, and then suddenly you're deep in the jungle and you have no fireball spell.
0: And uh, they can also have more awareness of what you are doing than you have of them, so that they have really good sentries. And so they are never caught by surprise, but uh, instead they are always prepared for you. And so uh, they, uh, depending on what system it is, you either give them a giant surprise bonus or you give them you know an automatic success and they always get to go first, or... Uh, you know, anything else that can reflect the fact that they, again, this is their turf and, and they know it uh, better than you do. And so they, they know what you're doing. They're watching you and you can, you know, even have a sense uh, that you are being watched, which of course fritters away your morale. The idea that this uh, force that won't stand and fight that keeps melting away, that is constantly sort of pinging away at you a death of a thousand cuts this also should have a psychological impact on the characters. And so you may uh, require uh, the equivalent of uh, sanity rolls, or composure tests or morale morale checks. If your
1: system has those, and that
0: could be, you know, even in F20, which doesn't typically do that, you can uh, lay that out as being one of their special abilities that after, you know, you've been harried and watched and harassed and messed around with uh, for a while, they could even, you know, play annoying pranks on you. Or again, they can uh, lead, um superior opponents uh into your path or uh, they can uh you might uh look at your map and all of a sudden realize that it's been uh, altered so that it's leading you you know through through the veil of doom or or what have you and so there's i think that the subtler the magics they use against you or the the uh, undermining tactics, the uh, more steadily angry and frustrated and and more determined to defeat them, the uh players uh may finally become and you know, if you really want to play this like an insurgency, there's no real permanent way to end an insurgency except to come to the bargaining table. Uh, so they uh, may finally decide that it's better to uh, negotiate with the uh, the Buopoth herders or the kobolds or or uh, whatever it is, the, the measly child vampires uh, than uh, to try and beat them because they're, they're going to come back on, y- on you again.
1: Yeah. And of course, the trouble is that, you know, because they are kobolds or child vampires. They may only be negotiating right now while you're here. And when you leave, they'll be up to their old tricks. It's, uh, it's a, in every table, it's going to be a balancing contest between is the point of this game to legitimately simulate counterinsurgency in, a, in an F20 context. And I'll tell you right up the top, that's probably not the point of your game. Um, or is it to present a challenge that can be overcome using uh, mind control or magic rubies or some other kind of a thing that is not available in the real world of counterinsurgency. And of course, in many counterinsurgencies, it can be defeated. It just takes, you know, nine years and land reform and a lot of other uh, uh, convenience. Or in Alexander the Great's case, you just have to marry the daughter of the chief brigand and put him in charge of keeping all the other brigands under control. Uh, Britain did something like that when they ran Afghanistan, Um, but they just didn't marry anyone's daughter. So it took them 100 years instead of four. Right.
0: But it's always a a political solution or an economic solution in addition to, uh, if not uh, replacing, the uh, go and find him and kill him solution. Right. Uh, Well, I think at this point it's time for us to uh, flee through these tunnels here to evade the superior opponent. That is time and see just what lurks for us. Uh, hopefully not surprising us on the other side of this here commercial.
1: You used to be a spy. You were part of the
0: clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires and got burned. You're
1: all alone against them. One player, one game master. Create your own agent, or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules, designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan, or use them as templates to create your own mysteries.
0: We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knights Black agents. Solo Ops.
1: At your security-cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store.
0: It's time once more to enter the History Hut, and this time around the History Hut looks a lot like a ring fort, perhaps on an island in Sweden, but oh no, this particular History Hut is littered with corpses because... Beloved patron backer Polly Damas asks, How might one work the Sandby Borg Massacre into a game, given that my great... Okay, let's, uh, this is getting in, into the technical weeds. Uh, let's first of all establish, Ken, what was the Sandby Borg Massacre?
1: Uh, well, people don't know, except that it happened at Sandby Borg, and it was a massacre. And it it's even different than a normal massacre. Sandby Borg is a ring fort. Um, in uh, Sweden on the island of Erland, which is uh, sort of uh, a, a barrier island off the coast of southern Sweden. It's it's long and narrow. It's like Manhattan, but bigger. And uh, apparently, in the 4th century BC, it was the headquarters of a lot, or at least the departure point, of a lot of, I suppose they probably were called Goths by the time they got that far south, but they were the next guys after the Goths that would eventually become... Gats and Swedes.
0: Right. And this is where we get to uh, uh, migration era Scandinavia. Exactly. uh, Very different, uh, as Polydamas asks, uh, and and thus a challenge to putting it on our game. So the migration era, Ken, is uh, this period of uh, invasions and counter-invasions and movement of people that occurs uh, as the Roman Empire is uh, starting uh, to get a little bit long in the tooth and then there's this a big period of uh, warfare and uh, tumult that will ultimately bring it to uh, to its end.
1: Yeah, by and large, depending on how you date it, from about 376 A.D., when the first bunch of gods pour over the Danube and start messing with the uh, East Romans, uh, down to, say, the 6th or 7th century A.D., by the time everything is sort of sorted out and everyone's got their new kingdoms, and, say, the Franks have begun to unify uh, Gaul as, uh, as the Frankish kingdom, the Ostrogoths have taken over Italy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have the beginnings of the medieval structures that will rise to replace the Roman empire. So, but during that period, it's uh, anyone with a band of cattle and a strong ax can go in and chop up a bunch of fat, effete Romans and take stuff. And that is the, uh, thing that the, uh, Gaits or Swedes or whoever they were of Oland were drawn down. To either do or prevent, and I'm pretty sure they didn't care which it was, but we know that they were in Rome because there are deposits of gold solidi, little Roman coins, gold coins, all over Oland and the immediate area in southern Sweden. And it's sort of circle, if you map the finds, it makes sort of a circle centered on Oland, which is why people believe that Oland is sort of the uh, destination point, departure point, general entrepreneurial source of uh sellsword's mercenaries and invaders which all goes great until about as I mentioned as you implied uh 45476 AD depending when the western roman empire falls apart completely and suddenly the source of roman solidity dries up and you have the almost immediate reaction on Oland, which by now is basically its entire economy is based on mercenarying Everyone forts up, and they build these ring forts. And there are many, many of them on Oland. Uh, the biggest one, I think, is called Ekatorp, and it's still there. Uh, it ter- got turned into a medieval fort by medieval Swedes. And uh, most of the rest of them got sort of abandoned uh, during the Viking era as uh, uh, people were able to go and get better jobs than sitting on Oland, uh, staring at their neighbors. But one of them, Sand B. Borg, was overcome by a massacre right around 480 AD. And the archaeology seems to suggest that Oland is built around the same time as all these other ring forts, around 475, and then is almost immediately overwhelmed by a massacre. And they know it's a massacre because they find the dead bodies just lying there. They're not buried. They're not burned. They have just been chopped in the head. Many of right. them, and, and they style. don't seem to be
0: clothed either. So it, right. the suggestion is that the uh, attackers came in the middle of the night, grabbed everybody, rounded them up, and uh, slaughtered them. And even more so than other battles of the time, they just killed everybody. They murdered children, uh, when typically children were considered valuable and would have been carried off. And-
1: right. They even killed horses. Speaking of valuable cargo, maybe you say, "Well." These were just people who didn't believe in slavery, but only in child murder. Well, everyone believes in horse theft, but in fact, they killed the horses and the other animals there and left them lying. And then they would take in at least two cases. They took teeth out of the animals mouths and put them in the mouths of the dead, which implies that. That it has a bigger meaning than just, you're getting too big for your britches, we want your solity. Because the other thing they didn't do is stick around to loot the place. There have been at least five, uh, troves of treasure found inside the doors of these, um, uh, of these huts inside the ring fort. Uh, and they were always at the same place, like just to the left of the entry. And it's sort of, I guess, the standard, you know, Sandy Borg way is okay. If bad guys show up, bury your goods underneath the doorstep and then the survivors can dig it up. Well, a, there were no survivors, but B the Raiders didn't stick around to loot anything. So it's a very big question mark of a mystery,
0: right? So the, the forensics suggest that the people who occupied Sandy Borg were massacred had done something to so offend the invading force that they had to, make this sort of mafia style statement uh and uh you can uh, posit one or two things is that a that that was a message to everybody else uh with everybody else's hill fort that this is this this is what happens if you mess with us and uh and so uh and we are so powerful that we don't even need to loot or uh sell off the children we're just going to uh slaughter everybody we are the most terrifying people in this uh in this area and the
1: the kaiser soza's of gateland right
0: or the other one is that the invading force was so uh, threatened by whatever the people at Sandby borg were up to whatever forces they were calling down whatever uh, uh black entities they were engaged with that uh they feared the consequences of uh taking anything that they uh had uh, uh, with them so that, uh, you can't dig up that gold. That's cursed gold. That has demon, um, uh, Igor on it. On you right. can't steal the children because they'll turn into demon children and, and stab you in the night. And the horse's teeth in the human victims, I think, sort of, uh, suggests A more than B, but perhaps that was a, a necessary, uh, part of the, uh, of the ritual. And, and I guess it all comes down to, uh, you know, whether you want to, Uh, portray uh, this massacre as a a necessary measure against uh, horror and evil or the uh, people as the uh, victims of a cruel and inhuman attack. They're uh, from the 5th century, so they're not around to be offended by whichever way we go. Uh, But just in terms of putting it in a game, clearly the idea that there's this economy that's all based on Uh, foreign adventuring and going off and being a mercenary and then all of a sudden there's nobody to mercenary for and you're all uh, nobody wants to go back to uh, subsistence agriculture Uh, and uh, you've got more money than you know what to do with another reason perhaps that the loot was all just left buried is gold uh, all of a sudden wasn't really worth anything anymore on the uh, on the island because you didn't have anywhere. To, you couldn't go back down to Rome and spend it. It was now a pain. And, and what you really needed was food. And so uh, it, it could be part of, uh, you know, a, a social as well as economic collapse. And Although,
1: again, if you needed food, you'd think you'd have taken the pigs. Right. Which they didn't do. And another thing that maybe can incline you if you are inclined to option B is that no one then went and resettled this, this spot, which is a lovely spot by the shore. It's convenient to schools and shopping, I'm sure, but it didn't get resettled, which is why it is still in sort of archaeological pristine condition from the moment of this massacre. And that implies that the spot had some sort of taboo on it. And it was either the, if you settle on this spot, we'll come back and kill you just like we killed those guys, you know, leaving it like sort of sowing Carthage with salt just to show how serious we are, or... It's because it was a land of ghosts and demonry, and you certainly don't go back to that spot. And for what it's worth, people nowadays on Oland will tell you, uh, I suspect, especially if you are saying you're writing this up for a magazine that their grandmother told them never to go to San Borg because of, you know, you'd run into something. And whether or not their grandmother actually said that or whether their grandmother has anything to do with something that happened in the 5th century AD is perhaps a different question. But certainly it was left vacant for something in a land and an economy where leaving stuff vacant was not the standard response.
0: So there are various ways that you could treat this. Uh, a asks about the difficulty of portraying a culture that's very unknown to gamers. But I think the solution to that is you just sort of set up the, uh, social and economic situation and, uh, let the players figure out the rest and just fill stuff in. You're not worried about, uh, everybody spontaneously improvising, uh, Plus, I'm not sure
1: land of murder hobos is something that players aren't familiar with.
0: Exactly. <laughs> all you have to do is set up the situation and, uh, and they know what to do with it. Uh, whether they're, they're swearing by the exact right. Say, gods or not. This
1: is a long Island full of hill forts. Every one of them holds adventuring parties. Think about that for two seconds. <laughs> They'll yes. be running around massacring people and stuffing their mouths with horse teeth.
0: Yes. And, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're all full of, they're all full of you. <laughs> Yeah, and,
1: it's like the tree on Dagobah, but worse. Right.
0: Um, so, you, if you were to, you know, make this a sort of a linked uh, series of sort of sandboxy, resourcey adventures, you, uh, you know, you you control uh, one of the Ring forts. You have dependents. You have. Uh, you know, infirm parents, and there's uh, uh, children, possibly your children. And Grubby little
1: you've, toe-headed children that are all yeah, darling.
0: and you've got to uh, protect them, so you could then build up to the fact that, oh, the people in this other ring fort have decided to to call down the demons in order to uh, uh, get the upper hand, and that is sort of tough, though, insofar as that sets you up as the people who commit this horrible massacre, uh, yeah. which I think is going to be Uh, leave an an ashen taste in people's mouths
1: yeah especially if at the end you have to kill all the little kids too which is gross yeah
0: that's that's gross so uh i think more likely that this is a mystery that occurs where you know you are not the people uh of sanby borg you're in the next ring fort over and uh you are probably on relatively good terms with them and uh you know yeah sure they're uh mercenaries without much war to wage, and so are you, but you have an accord with them. There's maybe some intermarriage and so forth, and then all of a sudden uh, in the middle of the night you hear a commotion and by the time you get there everybody's just lying there dead and I guess you detect something some, something in the ether that warns you not to go mess with the bodies that uh, you know your resident soothsayer says, no, just leave everything where it is don't take the loot, but uh, the mystery then is, who has laid this this curse on, uh, on the ravaged uh, fort and uh, are they going to come and do it to you? And how do you find out? And uh, and what do you do about them?
1: And then, of course, the the way to do it, regardless of your familiarity with um, migration area, Scandinavia, is to have that be the, you know, thing in the past that causes whatever the badness is in the present. And since it's been left undisturbed from 480 AD, the present can be anything from Beowulf times, where King Hygelac is sending his top fighting gats off to Oland to make sure that it uh, pays attention to him. And when you get there, the only thing anyone wants to know is what you're going to do about all the weird noises at Sandby Borg. Or it can be that a Victorian uh, rune scholar has found some de- uh, tesseract or some deadly device buried in Sandby Borg. And that's just its sort of backstory or the fact that of the 53 buildings in Sandby Borg, Almost three have been excavated, which means that in a modern-day campaign, you can say, oh, that's weird. The clues are all leading you to this weird hill fort in Sweden. And when you get there, badness occurs. Maybe you're thrust back in time to 480 AD and you have to, you know, avoid being massacred, but you also have to avoid whatever awfulness is that the people have called up. Or maybe you're the person who make sure to put horse teeth in the mouths of the chief vampires and prevent them from rising again. And you're leaving the archeological traces that will baffle people in the future. Or maybe it's just a MacGuffin. Maybe it's just Sandbyborg Borg is where the, the cursed amulet comes from. And it's a thing you could drop into the backstory and your characters never even see Sweden because the cursed amulet is being offered up on an online auction in Sydney, Australia or wherever. And so the characters just hear about it and think, well, I'm glad I'm not there. And that becomes a little chill moment for you. And then when they sh- see uh, a guy at the auction grin and he exposes his sheep teeth, they're like, OK, now I did not like any of that. Right.
0: And uh, and that's where we get to uh, the third part of Polydamas's three part question, which is "And um, what sinister forces are delaying the publication of the report on House 40 um, in real life. The uh, delay, doubtless is uh, underfunding of archaeology.
1: <laughs> right. And and also that probably everyone involved is Swedes. And so they all have to agree on it before they can release it. Or maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe the people who kickstarted that excavation suddenly had to write Vampire the Masquerade. Maybe lay them off. Maybe, maybe lay off those people. <laughs> maybe they're working as hard as they can. Could Pala be Damus.
0: Uh, But it could be that uh, in House 40, we know that several... Uh, uh a, a number of human remains were uh, dug up and Eight, it be, I believe that, yes uh could be that they found a skull where the uh the sheep teeth in the skull were actually intact and in the uh, in the skull and it's like oh wait a minute those sheep in that other person's mouth those were actually their 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 original teeth they were just busted out and uh it, the Swedish government of all people is not going to be quick to uh let people know that there are sheep human hybrids in in the past because it's you know irresponsible
1: yeah it sends the wrong message
0: yeah and there's there's no soberer nation than the swedes especially when mm-hmm. it comes to human sheep hybrids
1: yeah they they're they're in the forefront so the it can be just a cover up of we don't know what this is but we're not letting it out it can be someone within the excavation that's trying to find the amulet or the talisman or the tesseract and they're slow rolling all the publication just so they can control the entire process or it can be that um uh, there is uh, as we mentioned some sort of weird curse uh, that is still working. And so they don't even know why their report is delayed, but their computer keeps going down and they show up and it's it's printed in Comic Sans and they have to redo it. And everything's all missed because they have disturbed the curse of uh, a, of a curse that bored. painfully
0: drags out a publication process. Exactly. Mm, uh, that, that could seems happen. seems impossible Robin. to me. Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, on that note, it's time for us to. Before
1: uh, it gets too real.
0: Yeah, for for cheap human hybrids uh, and making sure we don't take any of the treasure, it's time for us to uh, uh, see what exciting change of pace awaits on the other side of this important commercial message. the best of Ask is now available at drive-through RPG. All
1: issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013 that's spelled
0: F-E-N-I-X
1: can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. and such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis and Pete Nash. Also find DICE, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory.
0: And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by
1: Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix.
0: And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing
1: game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish?
0: Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help
1: on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Defeat the deceptively small but wily foes who mean to doom this podcast by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Andrew Laliberti, Jonathan Donald, Chris McCarthy, Steve Purpich-Harvey,
0: and James Candolino. So hey everybody, welcome to another segment of Ken and or Robin Talk to Somebody Else, and in this time we are at uh, the Kraken and the Deep in the Heart of Germany, and we're talking to Phil Baldowski of "All Rolled Up." Uh, so we've never had anyone on the show before who does uh, role-playing accessories. And you do something really crazy with them, is you have something that you actually sell a lot of.
2: That's right. Well, there's a couple of products I uh, sell. I started off with one product, which holds all your dice and all your pens, which we invented, called the All Rolled Up. And we also the um, creators of the folding dice tray, the original folding dice tray as well.
0: So how did you... Uh, so dice bags have existed forever. Yep. So what gave you the idea to make a, a more a uh, tile dice bag? Well, I back in
2: 2013 I was made redundant um, in April and I kind of was in the down place and I used to make jewelry for a hobby and take it to UK Games Expo to sell. And one year I suggested to Paul that I'd make some dice bags and he said, well, why don't we do something different? And we kind of brainstormed for about two weeks with some paper and fabric models. And, and, and
0: Paul is your,
2: my husband's yeah. And yeah. he's
0: a partner in the company.
2: Yes, he is. Um, he's actually the publisher. Uh, he's a writer for another, um, I publish a book called the Cthulhu hack. So he's the right. He's the writer to that, but he's also my husband and he's also a silent partner in the company, helping me out everywhere. Um, so basically, with the all rolled up, we created this product. Um, we have a friend of ours, Graham, who has a stand there for fighting fantasy. He gave me a little bit of his table um, at UK Games Expo. And so we brought these hundred handmade, all rolled up dice bags to UK Games Expo. And really the rest is history. It just like nobody had ever seen anything like this before. It was a unique product and everybody just fell in love with it so it started off with just a few at each convention and six years later i'm still going um i didn't realize it would be something that would be a business i thought it was just going to be a hobby but uh, it's just like wow
0: <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so we're here at this small uh, sort of high-end uh, convention and i think one out of two people At this point, has a
2: probably has it all
0: rolled up at the table. Um, So, for people who are driving and can't uh, look it up on the internet while they are listening to this, what? Uh, what does it physically consist of? What are you getting when you get an all
2: roll? It up? is a fabric roll. Um, if you can think of something like an artist roll that used to hold like pens, like a pen roll or something. But this is unique in the sense that it has a pocket at the end that can hold your dice. But not only holds your dice, you can open your dice at the table and the pocket stays open. So you don't have to tip all your dice out. And in the middle part of the all rolled up, there's a pocket where you can put cards or wipe cards, um, and there's little slots for pens and tokens and everything. And then when you want to get all your product together for gaming, you just put everything in there. You don't have to even take it out. You just store everything in there. You roll it up with a little tie and I have, or a buckle. I have a version with a buckle, and you just keep everything in this little all rolled up. So um, and you just take it to conventions and, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about pen or, you know, paper and dice bag and notebook and everything. Everything is in this one little product.
0: And so the part that is outward facing when you roll it up, uh, it has uh, all sorts of options for customization. So people can uh, bring their uh, all rolled up to the table that reflects uh, the game they want to play or the event they're at. And so, uh, do you even know how many different types of ARES there are now, or does it even is that even a question that makes um,
2: sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I do actually. There's probably a good two or three hundred different styles. I I get bored when I'm sewing. I like to have different fabrics. Um, part of that is because I do do a lot of licensing with other companies role-playing companies so I can provide a product that goes with your game system Um, but I like to do different fabrics because people have their own personalities like you said and they want something to reflect the game or the personality Um, I've talked to many people some people will just have one all rolled up and that's what they like and then we have many people that we know that have probably a dozen or rolled ups because they they may be a GM that runs 12 different games and they want them all rolled up for every different system.
0: And so if you have your custom dice for that particular game, you put your custom dice in your uh, ARU for that uh, yep, particular absolutely. game and you're all set to go and you're demonstrating your superiority over the rest of the group who exactly. aren't nearly as committed as you and yeah. customizing your accessories.
2: And then the other thing we do is that folding dice tray which came a couple of years later. Um, I had a friend of mine, Tom, who bugged me for about a year about doing a little dice tray to go inside all rolled up and I just thought nobody wants to use the dice tray and lo and behold uh, about a year later I was just churning them out and let's just say he has a whole uh, <laughs> lifetime supply of dice trays if he wants them because I just never thought it was something that somebody would use and that product really exploded and we have probably made about 50,000 dice trays in the last three years and, and that's
0: like uh, for sense of scale that's a stunning number of items of anything compared to say the sales of any given role playing book that's yeah, that's a, a huge insane number yeah. um, and Uh, So if someone is looking for a a particular uh, design or theme uh, of a a dice tray or uh, an all rolled up, uh, how easy it is for them to contact you and make arrangements to get like a... A, a dice tray for their with their gaming club logo on it or, or so forth?
2: Oh, absolutely. We, we do that. We do custom work as well as um, products that I make. Um, my business partner, Paul Moore, he uh, does all my printing via Custom Patriot. So we work very closely together with everybody. Um, uh, I, somebody will send me their design. I send it off to Paul. He prints off. Um, he can print off the design on a neoprene dice tray and um, also I've got a brand new fabric now that he can print a panel um, to go on the front of an all rolled up so we have custom work on the all rolled up that can be very unique to one person so we can actually do a one of a kind or we can do like you know 500 of that product so it's very versatile in that sense.
0: And people can just head to your website and find out what the image requirements are. And-
2: yeah, yeah. Um, at the moment, we're just transitioning into a new website. It's still the same Um At the moment, it's the old website will be current for the next two weeks and then... Hopefully in the next 2 weeks fingers crossed that we'll have a brand spanking new website that you'll be able to do everything all automatically and do your requests for um, you know custom gaming products and such so it, we're really excited about that
0: And I understand that uh, printing process for printing on fabrics has suddenly gotten better or more affordable or both and you're doing maps as well or yeah
2: um we used to do through spoon flower or i would print at home on a printer onto fabric um and we put little badges on which we still do with some products um but uh we've now found a really cool fabric that can get some absolutely amazing detail for your for your maps and for your images and but we also have other fabrics that we work with Um, there's a gorgeous velvet that we make into maps and we've done for several kickstarters but that's something we also sell on our website so if somebody wanted a custom map again we can do a whole bunch via um, licensing which we do at the moment or if somebody just wanted the one of a kind we can do that as well
0: and so the are all rolled up, there's a certain amount of, uh, is, is there hand work or is it just laborious machine work or there's, there's a lot of personal hand work at any um,
2: It is all made by hand. We don't hand sew the machines, but, uh, the the all rolled up, but we do use a sewing machine. I have an industrial one now. Uh, when I first started, I had a home machine. It was so slow. And then about two years later, I purchased an industrial machine, which has speeded up the process a little but. Each one is made all handmade, they're all hand sewn. Um, each piece of fabric is cut by hand, um, pinned by hand, turned by hand. Nothing on an all rolled up is sent to China. It is literally all handmade in the UK. So the product you're getting is a quality lifetime product. I, I always say to my customers, if your all rolled up you know, falls apart you know, in your lifetime, you will get a free replacement. That's what I stand behind. Uh, but
0: not if the dog eats it.
2: Not if the dog eats it. That's not. That doesn't count. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so uh, one of the challenges then, uh, traditionally, of having high-end accessories uh, is getting them through uh, the traditional retail process. Because if there's something that requires all this handwork, obviously your price has to be uh, high enough to compensate for that. And if you're only getting forty uh, percent of that selling through retail that the actual retail price of that would be very high. So I assume you are selling direct to customers and also uh, through your website and also at at shows, is that basically? Yeah, but
2: we we also have priced in a factor that we can also sell. I mean, I sell through the website, we sell at uh, national shows, international shows, Um, But we also sell to retail. I I have figured out a price where I can actually sell it to a store. And we actually have several stores across the world that carry our products. There's a couple in Germany, France, Belgium, Holland. Um, We have two in Australia. And I think that's it at the moment. But... uh, we're probably looking into doing more of that. I mean, my are
0: you dealing direct with retail, or are you going through distribution?
2: No, we do direct with retail. Um, going through distribution for all rolled ups just isn't financially viable because it is a laborious, um, long-winded, you know, process of making this product, and everything. Like I said, everything's handmade, so. We, the price wise we we couldn't do it without sending it to china and i really don't want to do that because you know we have a quality product that's handmade in the uk and i really want to keep it that way um but on the other hand the dice trays is something that we can um we are looking to go into distribution in the future there's a few licensing things in the works which um hopefully we will be announcing very soon and one of them may be a quite a big distribution. So stay tuned for that.
0: So those are much close to being a manufactured product that yeah. you can do in, in, at scale.
2: Yeah, so that's something that my business partner in um, Sheffield, Paul, he prints them all for me. Um, and then they get sent back here to, or we pick them up from Sheffield to Manchester, UK. And then I have a small team who's run by my younger son, David, and David, is in charge of a couple of, two or three people that come in and they actually apply all the snaps by hand. So again, it's still... A handmade product. It's Um,
0: closer to manufactured, but it's not fully automated manufactured. Yeah,
2: and it's made in the UK again. So we really don't want to be doing that in China either because we can do it quick enough here in the UK. Uh, Just for an example, we did a Kickstarter a few months ago and it was 5,000 units. So it's something that we can do quite in a timely manner.
0: Now, from this uh, really smart business model you have where you uh, basically, if you're selling something uh, like that, you can sell it to a gamer who plays any any game. And that uh, has often been said in the past that the people who really make money in role-playing are the dice manufacturers because you have to buy dice for any game. But you've been lured into the world of uh, role-playing publishing as well yeah. with Cthulhu Hack, so yeah. tell us about that.
2: Right, Cthulhu Hack. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a game called Black Hack quite a few years ago, David Black released, and it sort of spawned off like... You know a billion different hacks out there and a lot of them the out but my husband who loves hp lovecraft um stories and his mythology um decided to write a book called the cthulhu hack and from there it, it kind of just again we just thought it'd be a little hobby thing and that has like quite it's expanded now to like um, eight different books which are like GM-related or adventure-related. Um, it's been published by a Kickstarter twice by a French company for the beginning books and the uh, all the expansions. It's been um, translated into Spanish. It's in the works of being translated into German. And also we have a guy in Japan who's decided he wants to Jap- uh, translate it into Japanese. So... so- What is
0: it? uh, Of course, there's uh, any number of Cthulhu uh, role playing games out there now. What is what is it that makes Cthulhu Hack specific?
2: Right. The the special thing about Cthulhu Hack is it's a very light um, game, a a very light orientated game process um, system, I should say. Um, It it allows you to you can create uh, you can create characters in ten minutes. In fifteen minutes, you can be running a game for. four to six people, I mean my husband's run one for eight before in Spain, um, but it, it is just a games-like system and we're sort of aiming at people who want to run convention games, because. Um, Obviously, convention games are three to four hours for an adventure, so it's aimed towards that. It's also aimed towards people who don't really have a lot of time. Um, you know, it's well and all to run a long adventure um, or a campaign. But obviously, not everybody has that time, you know, people have families that they want to split their time with. And it's just a nice light system that allows people to um, run shorter games. I mean, you can run them longer if you wish, but it's just a very easy system to learn, a begin, you know, more for a beginner. So short learning curve, easy handling. Fast. and value for money too I should say um, we just won we've won numerous awards the latest being um, my husband won uh, the last year's UK games Expo for both judges uh, choice and people's choice Valkyrie 9 and the when we spoke to the judges afterwards they said it was just you know packed full of uh, adventure it was just a really well-packed full game and um for value for money i mean we sell the core book for six pounds you know compared to a book out there that somebody who's new to role play may not want to spend 40 or 50 pounds on the beautiful glossy book you know which is lovely but if they don't know anything about role playing it's it's affordable for them you know it's not a lot of money to spend
0: Now, uh, you are not just a maker of all rolled-ups. You're a user of them because you're a a dedicated gamer. I've seen you at the show and uh, playing all sorts of different games. So have you ever had the experience of while you're playing the game of thinking, this needs a new different pocket for this other thing?
2: Yeah, yeah, I have had that. I mean, I kind of want to keep the original all rolled up as is but we do do variations um i've had but we do special requests so uh we've had one for a book pocket um somebody wanted for these fighting fantasy books so it actually can hold a a novel size book inside the all rolled up that you can roll up Um, We've also had uh, somebody in France who's playing card games, um, some occult game also, and he wanted two side pockets in there. So it is, I will never change the outside or the dimensions because I've actually created a pattern that is not wasteful. I mean, we pretty much use up every scrap of fabric. I've designed a, a pattern that is, um, you know, you use up everything um, pretty much. I can make a hundred a roux and I'll have enough scraps in my bag to fill a small shopping bag so it's quite a um good pattern for that but uh when i start having to go into different pockets obviously it, it then changes but
0: but it's something people can negotiate with yeah
2: absolutely absolutely so um you know i've looked into doing things for the wargaming gaming community so they put their pens we can make slimmer pockets in there so they can put their paint paintbrushes. Um, I've even had people buying it to put their makeup in. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a lady, she wanted to gift it. She wanted some um, floral designs and she wanted to put nail polish and stuff in there. And it was just a nice little travel kit. It is versatile. I mean... I have another friend of mine who we adjusted one of the middle pockets and she uses it as a sewing kit and she puts her little scissors and everything inside that she can take with her. So there are quite a few uses. Um, another thing that you can use the ore rolled up for is for travel games. Um, a lot of the travel games which come in big boxes, uh, I'll give you an example here, Forbidden Island. You can fit the entire Forbidden Island game into an All Rolled Up. So when you're traveling, rather than having to travel with a big box in your suitcase, you've just got this neat little roll with all your bits in it.
0: Well, awesome. That makes me uh, want to go on a, on a trip with an All Rolled Up. So I think uh, that's our cue to uh, uh, both get in planes and uh, fly out of here. So uh, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you for having me, Robin.
1: Have you found the yellow sign? The king in yellow. Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover
0: in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John
1: Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated king in yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The sparks from the Jacob's Ladder and the static from the Van de Graaff generator, the bubbling Bunsen burners, and the sound of a theremin, for some reason, tell us that it's time once again to have fun with science. Uh beloved Patreon backer, Wayne Rossi, has written in to inform us that scientists, the best kind of scientists, recently (laughs) discovered a lump of metal larger than Denmark. Uh, below the moon's south pole. They claim, scientists always claiming, it was from an asteroid impact. What is the real elliptonic cause and meaning of this? Well, let's begin, I guess, Robin, with the fact that uh, the Masons in NASA are not even trying, because (laughs) the mission that discovered uh, this uh, mass of metal was called the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory Mission, or GRAIL, I am not <laughs> making this up.
0: Well, you know, with, with budget cuts, the department <laughs> that covers up their, their Masonic acronyms right. uh, has been sidelined. And it yeah, uh, has been, well, yeah. I, I,
1: you know, it's, 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 the new appointees are like, well, if we're looking for the Holy Grail, it should be on the shirts.
0: Well, you know, there's, there's been a change in, in appointee quality lately. Right.
1: Well, it's, you know, let's, let's not, I mean, they found, they found the moon metal. Say what you want, but yeah, the covering up guy is is still he's very mad. Anyhow,s the larger point is that it's uh, it is as you can imply a gravimetric study of the moon. They ran an, an orbiter around the moon. They they have a, a gravimeter on the orbiter. The orbiter says that's odd. There's a gra- uh, increase in the gravity there at the south pole. And the South Pole, of course, on the moon is in a feature called the Aitken Basin, or the South Pole Aitken Basin, which is a ginormous, uh, probably impact crater. It's about 1,200 miles across, which is very big. And it is also uh, uh, maybe uh, where that big piece of metal hit back 4 billion odd years ago. Although, if it hit 4 billion years ago, the argument is that it should have by now been drawn to the middle of the moon by gravity. And the fact that it didn't is, I guess the question that, uh, the good people at grail are asking themselves.
0: Right. Well, if if we're talking science and I believe we are. The first thing we know about (laughs) the moon is there are no coincidences on the moon. There could be coincidences here on earth because there's more stuff on earth and that makes things more complicated, but uh, there's less stuff on the moon and therefore no coincidences. So, uh, If there is a big hunk of metal at a pole, this immediately puts me uh, in the sciencey fact that the Earth's magnetic poles will periodically flip over and shift and that the magnetism of the world will uh, go from one direction to the other. And this is useful for geologists in noting different uh, uh, time periods in in rocks and so forth. But it's perhaps a pain in, uh, in the butt for beings who depend... On a reliable uh, uh, magnetic uh, setup. For example, let's say when I think of uh, beasts who might be living on the moon, I think moon beasts. And yeah, Again, right the name. Yeah.
1: They, they also are terrible at covering things up.
0: They, they are because <laughs> yeah. they've got other problems to worry about, specifically the fact that uh, if they're the magnetic poles of the moon shift, uh, they suffer terribly. That their mm-hmm. entire uh, ley line connection, even their uh, their biology, even in the iron in their blood, uh, depends on uh, having uh, the uh, magnetic direction going in one particular way. So, of course, naturally, they would attract an asteroid to them in order to uh, place it uh, where? Any old random place? No, at a, at the South Pole in order to make sure that the magnetism of the moon never flips over and they're always... Uh, in the Moon Beast equivalent of gravy, making sure that the magnetism is always the way that they—it's uh, a stabilizer, they it. basically. Exactly, it's it's a little uh, a, a ground uh, unit, or uh, you know, it's it's a stabilizer. So uh, they are very happy with their magnetic stabilizer and anxious to protect it uh, because uh, another thing about a big chunk of metal is that lots of things in the universe, uh, for example, your your Migo, your uh, all of your various space-bearing threats. Uh, they kind of like metal. They can find it. They find it useful. You have a whole bunch of it all together. Uh, they might uh, come together and mine it, and so that's a a big point of contention with them. And uh, the Moonbeasts, who can of course access our awareness through our dreams, yep. as soon as they find out that there's a program called Grail to identify the existence of their big stabilizing chunk of of uh, metal, or shall we say platinum? Right. Let's just say that. Uh, on the moon, that they are going to be pretty uh, irked to find out that people are uh, testing and measuring and and finding out that they've got this chunk of metal 186 miles below the surface that hasn't migrated into the middle of the moon. And they're going to be concerned, especially when they hear that there's a space force uh, being developed uh, by a newly rapacious American government that obviously their next conclusion is going to be they're coming for our moon plug are platinum moon. They're flight.
1: coming for the moon metal.
0: And naturally that will cause a counter reaction.
1: Now, the moon
0: beasts, they could be jumping to conclusions. Moon beasts again, we're talking science, are known for that.
1: Their poor impulse control. Exactly. So It's cuz they live on the moon and right. it makes them crazy. So,
0: it may not in fact be the case that the forces that are controlling NASA literally regard the platinum that the moon beasts have as their holy grail that they're going to recover in uh render unto them enormous wealth. Although the more that I say this, the more credible it sounds.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's a known evidence right there. Right.
0: Right. Um, so the moon beast might be right. They might be wrong, but they've heard of this program. They're very concerned that someone's going to um, mess up the magnetism of their, uh, their orb, uh, which, which frankly, uh, you know, they have picked, you know, just a sort of a barren moon. It's nothing great. Uh, it's more impressive when you're dreaming, but still, uh, they feel that people should leave uh, well enough alone and uh, they're going to start sending agents around to uh, to bust up NASA. So it's Moonbeast versus NASA. And are they going to uh, directly appear and uh, uh, start uh, uh, messing around with people? Or are they going to uh, use their dream influence on others in order to get them to, to do their bidding? Well, one of those sounds uh, somewhat safer for the Moonbeast than the other.
1: Yeah. So the real question is how many people at NASA on the grail project have cats because that as we know is the only defense against moonbeasts because if you, if you kill them and, and topple their city a thousand years later, you just get more moon beasts. You got to spray. So cats, cats are the secret. And that is where, uh, the cats of NASA game, no doubt could take off from, uh, another thing that I should point out since we're being Lovecraftian and what were the odds that was going to happen? I'd say a hundred percent, uh, The Aitken Basin also has, uh, in the fun words of Wikipedia, ponds of iron-rich basalts. And uh, I like the word ponds of basalts just because (laughs) it's fun. But basalt, as we all know, is what you build uh, Cthulhu, uh, you build Rylai or you build Cthulhu cities out of. So there may be, in fact, a whole buried moonbeast city underneath the Aitken Basin, and that is... The moon beasts, much like the crinoid uh, uh, elder things, have all accumulated at their south pole around their cool magnet. And it's not just a matter of having to, you know, uh, reset their daylight savings time or uh, get their allergy med- meds updated. It's a life or death situation because if you take their grail metal, their platinum grail away, then they, uh, they have no defense against the Migo or whatever is even worse than them on the moon and uh and it's a it's it's a real situation so ponds of basalts robin let me just say that again And
0: uh, also as we know scientifically if there are different heavenly bodies and there are metals on them uh there is a trade perhaps even a triangular trade arrangement in those metals or or uh, precious stones in this case so it could very well be that the moon beasts are trading basalt uh to the uh Forces that require them, the spawn of Cthulhu, uh, in order to uh, get some protection for their uh, platinum uh, magnetic moon stabilizer, and, and we so, do know that
1: the moonbeasts traffic in rubies uh, in the Dreamland. That's that's documented,
0: right? So they're uh, already familiar with uh, with trade routes and trade arrangements, and uh, I would uh, definitely assume that they are, uh, you know, running a trading post there uh, by their a metal plug which is another thing that they don't want disrupted right that this is a, the to the extent that the moonbeasts have an economy which is a
1: surprising extent frankly
0: yeah well they uh, they practice slavery so they have uh, there's people laboring to do things for them so they have mm-hmm. an economy of some kind and uh, perhaps indeed the that the, their laborers are in in the basalt line, so that if you you know if you sleep the wrong way and wind up in the wrong place in the dreamlands you can be uh, if if you wake up tired every morning, you may, uh, in fact, be working the space basal lines for them every night and therefore not getting your proper rest. Yeah. And again, who are they most likely to uh, try to uh, hijack uh, the, the labor of? But the people working the grail operation in NASA. Yep. So NASA. there's a, a spate of insomnia related uh, accidents that uh, you, the investigators, are uh, uh, sent out to uh, discover, you know, relatively mundane thing. But, you know. Could be, in fact, that you're uh, discovering a moonbeast stolen labor campaign. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, in order to bust up that, that, uh, that ring of forced labor, you're going to yourself have to go into the dreamlands, get caught, and uh, get into their uh, basalt mining operation and then, and then bust it up.
1: Ideally, uh, in coordination with a team of cats that can uh, liberate you from the outside. Otherwise, you're just stuck in the basal mines.
0: Right. And as we know, that is why, again, this is all science. Uh, This is why cats need your leg in bed. It's why they uh, are very insistent that you wake up and feed them at a particular time. You know, cats really, they can wait. They, you know, they're they're patient. But they know that they've got to wake you up early in the morning or uh, uh, sleep on your face and and suck up your breath because uh, that wakes you up. Uh, and prevent you from being permanently enslaved by movies. So
1: yeah, they're doing you a favor. Exactly. Least you can do is feed them their kibble. Yeah,
0: it's not selfishness at all. Now, now that you're awake, sure. Yeah, you got to hand over the kibble. That's just you know, that's just having a cat 101. But that's they're, just they're good doing sense. yeah. So next time your cat wakes you up at an annoying hour, whether it's mewing uh, next to your bed or uh, you know uh, sticking a claw in, that cat is more concerned than the one is mewing. But they're all concerned yeah. for you. And they're saving you from basalt slavery, people.
1: And isn't any price, and certainly a quarter cup of kibble, worth paying for that?
0: It, exactly. The cats are our friends. And this is why they've... That's why they joined forces with us, in order to help us fight the moonbeasts. We didn't even know that this was a necessity.
1: And yet, there they are. They're like They're like, in a way, a grail team of their own, just better at covering it up.
0: Exactly. And... They don't even care about platinum. Nope. They're, it's a matter of great indifference
1: to me. Exactly. Much like virtually everything.
0: <laughs> uh, indeed, yes. Uh, well, I'm not indifferent to the amount of time that this podcast has taken, so I think it's time to uh, uh, draw to a close. Uh, perhaps uh, those of us on the team who have cats will go and, and uh, pet them, perhaps an ear scritch or two. Maybe a couple. Yeah. And we'll be revived and ready and uh, able to participate in another edition of this exciting podcast, a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors.
1: Atlas Games.
0: Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gelm, Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast
0: from rolling up for the last time by joining such esteemed Patreon backers as... Lee Candelino. Grady from New Mexico. Louis Sylvester. Michael Manival.
1: And Phil Bailey. Wear
0: this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See
0: you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.